0: Hello everyone and welcome to this next in our series of Pensions and Diversity podcasts. I'm delighted today to be joined by Linda Whitney and Sue Hoare from Aon. Linda and Sue are the authors of the Aon Guide, Practical Diversity and Inclusion for Trustees, which many of you may be aware of. And those of you who haven't read it, you will find it linked in the post to which this podcast is attached. It's definitely worth reading and exposes a lot of issues that are relevant for trustee boards and their advisors. Linda, probably well known to many of you, is a scheme actuary and she's a partner at Aon. She has over 20 years experience working with trustees right across the spectrum of issues. Susan's also a scheme actuary and a partner at Aon. And in addition, she leads Aon's trustee governance team. She's prepared a number of materials to support trustee effectiveness and believes that D&I is an important part of effectiveness for trustee boards but also for member engagement. So, Welcome both, and thank you very much for agreeing to join us. So to start our discussion and focusing on the guide for the moment, I think, Linda, first question for you. Why did you set out to produce the practical guide? I think it's probably the first that um, consultants have produced in this space.
1: Well, Susan and I were talking about this area, and we felt there was some really great material out there around lived experiences in diversity and inclusion, and some great sessions that have been run by people like the Diversity Project, you know, the background work from the PLSA. But what was really missing were the practical actions. So if somebody had heard the case for DNI, but then
0: said, "What do I do?" Mm. Um, that was where we were feeling that there was a gap. And I, I think that's a very pertinent point because certainly, when I started thinking about it in the, in the pension space, I, you know, I thought, "Well, I understand what DNI means as an employer." but I'm not really sure if I know what it means in the in the pension scheme space. So perhaps just on that point, Susan, what are the, the specific areas that the guide covers? How will it help trustees? So we, we try to focus on a really broad range of topics.
2: And so we cover things like unconscious bias in trustee decision making, how to attract diverse candidates in trustee appointments, accessibility of member communications, unconscious bias in trusted scheme rules, dni in investment decisions and in actuarial calculations so a really broad range of topics and that was our aim to show how you can apply a dni lens to most activities and our hope was that once you start to focus on dni in a couple of areas what you find is it just broadens your thinking generally and before you know it you have a dni lens on all aspects of running the pension scheme But we'd be really interested if your listeners think there are other topics we could have
0: picked. That's a very interesting point you make about you know once you start putting a lens on it that you bring what you might have learned in one area to another because something that you you cover in the guide which I found very interesting was how we use language in perhaps a very gender focused way and I think you've talked about it in the context of, of trustees and we'll come on to but I was just thinking as you were talking about actually the importance of how we use language and terminology in member communications which we probably don't think about because the person who holds the pen will write with their own probably their own unconscious biases so yeah I think you're right it does start coming across all of the things we look at or it should do so just picking up I think Sue on a couple of the the points that you mentioned there to talk about in a bit more detail and this is a I think probably the the trickiest one you mentioned unconscious bias in, dis- in discretionary decision making. Can you just talk, talk to us a little bit more about that and how, how you see that in practice? Sure, definitely.
2: So as an AON trustee, I can tell you that um, anyone involved in making discretionary decisions feel a huge responsibility to get these right. And I don't think I'd ever appreciated that as an advisor until I took on a trustee role. And I think it's just that we know these decisions impact real people. But the problem that we have here is that modern family structures are complex and there are often a range of different decisions that you could give for any one case. And in reality, if I gave the same case to different trustee boards, we can expect them to reach different conclusions. And this feels really uncomfortable. And to be clear, when I talk about unconscious bias, I'm not pointing the finger at trustees here to say that they're doing anything wrong. We're all prone to unconscious bias in our decision making. We're hardwired that way. It's the most efficient way to cut through the huge amount of information coming at us. These are the shortcuts based on our own experiences of similar situations. We bring all of our life's experiences in the decisions that we make. So, our focus is on encouraging trustee boards to be open about unconscious bias and to look for ways to remove it from the decisions that they're making.
0: You mentioned complex family structures. I suppose death benefit, discretionary death benefits, are are some of the most tricky sort of areas and perhaps your health benefits? It, those are exactly the kind of cases
2: that we're thinking about where, where there isn't a right or a wrong answer. It's not like an investment decision that you mm-hmm. make that if you get it wrong guess what we'll just sell that investment and redo that. You make that decision and it impacts someone's decision life forever and we always want to get those decisions right and the one thing particularly in a death case you just don't have the ability if particularly without ex- a, recent expression of wish form to ever find out exactly what the member wanted. And with some of the complex family situations that are fairly normal these days, it can be quite tricky to know exactly where to pay out the different benefits.
0: Yes, and of course, there are a plethora of pensions, ombudsman cases of people challenging precisely these types of, of decisions. Yeah. Just to follow up on that then, Linda, from a practical perspective, how, how can advisors and trustees look to remove that type of unconscious bias?
1: Well, one of the tools that Susan and I use when we're talking to trustees, whether in training or with a real case in front of us, is to think about pairing up scenarios. So if you think there's an area that unconscious bias might be impacting, then consider that case with it and without it. So um, picking up that area of ill health discretionary decisions Well, let's say you've got a medical report saying the member's suffering with long-term mental health issues. In that example, you could create a paired scenario where you were looking at uh, perhaps, I don't know, a bad back. That's an equally difficult physical condition to reach uh, an understanding of what the long-term medical prognosis is. And that allows you to test, is there a bias between a mental health condition and a physical health condition? are we expecting the same levels of, of evidence? Are we getting the same types of medical support or you know input in terms of what it would take to make that role appropriate for them if they were going to 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 be able to recover and come back?
0: That's a really interesting way of looking at it actually and and, and your paired example actually just reminded me of a decision I was helping some trustees with now probably about 15 years ago when of course people didn't really talk about mental health and, and ill health in the same informed way that we tend to now. But I do remember the individual in question having applied for this the ill health pension and one of the trustees subsequently having seen him out at some social event or some gathering. And and the inference that was brought back to the trustee board was very much, well, he can't be unwell yeah. because of you know the lack of of understanding. Whereas, you know, obviously if he'd been there with his leg in a cast, it would have there would have been no question he was still too unwell to to work, albeit that he was at this event. I think that's I think that pairing is a really helpful practical idea. And um, you
1: can use that pairing in, in you know lots of different discretionary mm-hmm. circumstances, whether it's to pair for, you know, a different family structure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether you're unmarried couple, if you're thinking about dependence pension, mm-hmm. is it a female dependent or a male dependent? Is it a same-sex or a heterosexual? You know, you can look at those different things and you can draw out from that what are the facts that you need versus Mm. what are the things that are potentially
0: unconsciously drawing you into a bias situation and I I think just from a legal perspective of course those types of biases if, if we're thinking about some legal terminology may well be what we would call irrelevant factors in decision making so picking up an example from the guide for example I think you you've um I think it's in the context of a of a dependent benefit, and some of the quotes that you have you have included are you know along the lines of, you know a, a female dependent well obviously they must be a homemaker so therefore they need to be looked after with the spouse's pension, oh but if if the survivor is male why shouldn't he just go out and get a job, and of course. Those are precisely the things that as a lawyer I would like to think I would say to the trustee board, well, no, actually, your your view on who should or should not be the breadwinner is an irrelevant factor in this in this decision making. So it's not just about trustees doing sort of what is right from a social and governance perspective. It's also fundamentally about making robust legal decisions, which of course is how in what are often very emotive and difficult decision-making processes, is how trustees defend the the process they've been through by showing they've only considered relevant factors and have not considered irrelevant ones. I think the
2: challenge here is that what you don't always get is people think some of these things without saying them, and so it's yes. about being open about some of this unconscious bias. And and that's certainly one of the things that we would encourage trustees to do. So my one of my own unconscious biases that I've come across is that I think of relationships where the parties live separately as less serious than if they choose mm-hmm. to live together. And so I have to do that whole pairing of scenarios and consider the same situation exactly the same, but now assume that the couple live together rather than chose to live mm-hmm. separately when I consider that case and that is the kind it being open about these situations i think is really helpful because you're absolutely right if the conversation is happening you can point out what's relevant and what's irrelevant but often it isn't said
0: i wonder if there's a role then for you know strong chairing and of course effective chairing is something that that we know tpr is is interested in but for you know a chair to actually say if, if these types of issues not being discussed and and a decision is made you know, is there a role for a chair to say, can we just test how we reached that decision? Can we do some pairing, for example, to try and bring out the types of things that people, as you say, might not have been even aware? I mean, we call them unconscious biases, don't we? Weren't even aware that they were bringing to the table.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's a really, really good idea, and, and we we talk a lot about devil's advocates. And here, I think it's much easier if you depersonalize it rather Absolutely. than in my biases. What could the biases be in this yeah. situation? Yes. I think that's an easier way to talk about them and bring them
0: into the room. Yes, because of course, I mean, bias itself has has such a negative connotation attaching to it. Yeah. And actually, I think what we're really talking about, as you said in your in your introductory remarks, is just bringing our own lived experience to the way in which we process information, and that is neither right nor wrong, it is just our experience. And so perhaps, as you say, depersonalising it so that people don't feel that there is a flaw in the way that they are approaching a decision is more likely to generate a a more open conversation. I'd agree. The other really practical area that I wanted to pull out of the guide, um, and that I mentioned just at the beginning, is around trustee appointments. And and I think that follows on quite nicely from this idea about what experience do we ourselves bring to the table? So I think, Linda, you were going to, to talk a bit about this. How, how, you know, especially in a time when lots of trustee boards are struggling to get people to volunteer for roles or employers are finding that, you know, perhaps schemes are more legacy and so it's difficult to get people to take on the extra responsibility. If we're now saying, well, let's add on another layer of so-called complexity, how can you incorporate DNI into, into trustee appointments, in a, perhaps in a way that, that becomes second nature, so it's not sort of an additional burden? And, and I think probably we're talking member trustees here, really.
1: Well, I think actually you can improve the number of members who are putting themselves forward by making it more inclusive, allowing a wider group of people to actually see that this could be something that they could do. So being explicit around, we're looking for a fresh perspective. We're looking for people who think differently to our current board. And things like when you're actually just drafting the communication, small things in terms of the wording can be really important. So actually there are stereotypically male phrases and stereotypically female phrases to make sure that your application process isn't only talking to one gender. I think another thing would be how you kind of list the requirements you're looking for. You know, there's lots of things you might want from your trustee, but actually the biggest thing you want is somebody who's willing to learn. Mm -hmm. So really focus on that side of things rather than very specific things you're trying to tick off, because it's very well documented that that women and minorities are much less likely to apply for a role if they can't tick off that list of requirements
0: in the job Mm -hmm. specification just picking up on something you said there, Linda. I, I really liked this suggestion in the guide and apologies, to if I'm about to take away anything that you were going to talk about, but you've said, consider prompts in communication with members. For example, share a photo of the current trustee board and ask, could you bring a different perspective to our team? If so, you could be our next trustee. I think that's a, a fabulous idea, actually, because It's a really visual way of saying we want to bring something different to the table. You mustn't feel like a minority. You must feel like an addition, a a benefit to us. So I I really like that. One of the difficult topics around trustee appointments, of course, is this question of whether an MNT is elected or selected. And there are probably risks in both approaches in relation to, to diversity. Sue could you you talk to us a bit about that process of of bringing diversity if you're using an election process rather than selection? Sure so
2: election certainly ties our hands in terms of being able to choose a member that best fits with the existing Mm -hmm. board so when we have an election you're leaving that decision to your membership but assuming you have been able to attract a number of candidates to put themselves forward Within the ballot papers, you can include some additional wording in order to explain to the membership what it is that you're looking for. You can talk about what the strengths of the current board are and what skills would really complement the board at the moment. And then it is up for your members to vote for the candidate that they feel Mm -hmm. is right. It's also about making sure that diverse candidates who show an interest have the election biography that demonstrates their skills and experience. And we may need to help them get that experience. Mm -hmm. So it could be that you're encouraging some of those candidates to do the regulators toolkit, to contribute to the pension scheme management through reviewing member communications or some other project, and really trying to level the playing field for all of the different candidates. And there's no guarantee that the membership choose the candidates that you would have selected (laughs) through the selection exercise but we also have the employer nominated trustees. And so there's another way in which you can balance the skill diversity that you have across your board, not just the member trustee. And here I would say it's really important for trustees to engage early on with sponsors on succession planning so that you have time to think about future candidates, what kind of skills, what kind of diversity
0: you'd like from them. In in the way that you would with a, with a corporate board. Um, I was really interested there in what you were saying about so engaging with people and to some extent it's almost like a mentoring process helping them get up the curve and encouraging them all of which i think is a really admirable way to to start your succession planning i suppose the challenge that that throws open to us is particularly for time and resources poor boards how do they make sure that they can put a dni lens on things are we really saying that dni is only in practice is only going to be something that the big, well-resourced boards can look at, or do you do you think it's something that is applicable for all schemes?
1: I think any scheme can tackle this when they're focusing on a specific project because it's not adding to the difficulty or the cost of that exercise. It's just getting the best out of that exercise, whether that's a you know review of member comms, whether that's looking at. I don't know, D.C. Uh, default investment funds, mm-hmm. you're trying to bring those things in. I mean, the pensions regulators set up an industry group on diversity and inclusion. And, and in fact, Susan and I are both participating in that. And that's going to very much build on their 21st century mm-hmm. trustee campaign. And, and so there is going to be further thought from the
0: TPR that is definitely going to be there for for all schemes. All trustees and that's perhaps the focus isn't it it's it's not about getting a lot of expensive bespoke training or you know materials for for particular trustee boards it's perhaps helping to direct a lot of trustees to resources that that are available. Absolutely and the corporate
1: may be an existing resource yes. that you can draw on because they're already on their own, um, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion journeys, they've often got further ahead than the pension scheme in Mm. their thinking. So actually, Mm. if you want to build momentum for the pension scheme, you know, a quick and efficient way of doing that actually is grabbing some of the great material that your corporate's already doing and bringing that into Mm. the pension
0: scheme space. I think that's an excellent idea. And I think from the corporate perspective, making those resources available to the pension scheme seems an eminently sensible idea because what what a corporate wouldn't want is to have its own diversity, equity and inclusion policy or strategy or journey, often which is now, you know, employers are talking about these things in the public domain, only to find that the scheme is doing something completely contrary or or is just not plugged into it. Um, So I think there is a win-win there. We will... Probably not be thanked now by employers who find themselves inundated with requests from their trustees. <laughs> um, really this has been such an interesting conversation. i'm I'm just conscious of of time. I suppose just to to wrap up, what else are you seeing pension schemes focusing on in the DNI space? So for us, it's coming at it from two different angles. So
2: schemes are either starting with a policy at the top end and thinking about their philosophy and then tr- taking that through everything they do or some are just actually looking at what's the next activity on our business plan. And so that might be member trustee appointments that we've talked about. It might be a review of member communications and how to make those more accessible. It might be that you're doing an actuarial factor review and that just happens to be the next item on your business. Mm-hmm. And taking these and applying a DNI lens is what some schemes are doing. So as Linda says, it's not about a big budget or mm-hmm. finding extra time on your agenda. These items were already on the agenda mm-hmm. and it's just making sure that they have that DNI lens and focus when you look at them.
0: Agreed, and and as we were saying just just then, you know, employers will will often be ahead of the curve on this journey. But I suspect a lot of trustees will find that their advisor communities also are. Um, you know, we are increasingly asked when we're pitching for work or when we're talking to new clients, you know, what else we can add beyond the legal space. So, um, you know, how can we work with clients in the in the DNI sector, for example? And bringing those resources to our trustee clients is, you know, I think probably one of the next steps in the journey.
1: But it does potentially push trustees out of the comfort zone because it's a bit more difficult. It's a bit more personal. It's rather different to other topics we discuss. And people have to take a bit of a risk. Mm -hmm. They have to make themselves a bit more vulnerable, you know, be willing to make a mistake that they use the wrong language for the right reason because they're trying to make a change and actually when they do that i think sometimes they'll surprise themselves at how diverse their experiences are yes. when they actually you know share them with their fellow trustees
0: yes because just i suppose we may find a trustee board where everybody or or the majority look the same but actually they come from different backgrounds they've had different employment experiences their children have are having different different life experiences and and as you say actually once people start talking they find there's a lot of diversity of experience in a room um, and, and we shouldn't underestimate that. I think diversity of experience and, and the the different ways in people which people's thinking works and their brain works often can be some of the most int- interesting angles here. As I say, I think we could have kept talking about this all afternoon. I'm really conscious that we try and keep our podcast to a, a bite-size piece, but thank you both so much. And I think, you know, on behalf of anyone who reads this, um, thank you for publishing the guide. It's, I think, just a really excellent way for trustee boards and and their advisor communities to start really thinking about what the little things they can do to start having these dni discussions more broadly so as i said at the at the outset the link will be on our on our page and all it remains is for me to thank linda and susan both very very much for this excellent conversation thank you very much thank you thank you